Ephesians 4, we need to start talking about first and foremost in regards to these relationships that we need to walk in unity. Unity is one of the first key words for us in this conversation. You know, if you, again, for those that are married or have been married, the symbol of a ring, if you're a pastor or whoever married you or if you went through premarital counseling or whatever else, what that means and, and why it's such an important symbol because it, it's a circle. And does a circle end? No, it's, it's infinity and beyond. It never ends. Thus, the relationship between a husband and wife never ends. It should always remain according to God's word. But it's also a single unit that works together. The unity between a husband and wife and the family unit is important. So let's read verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 4. Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You hear those words? And if you're thinking about that in regards to your relationships, your marriage, your family, children, whatever, what have you, think about those words. With all humility, that might speak to some in the room, gentleness, patience, if you're a parent, patience, patience, and more patience, bearing with one another in love. Don't forget the institution of marriage and family is human beings living together. We understand the explosive dynamic that that can be. We're human. We're sinful. We mess up. And yet we're supposed to live in harmony and unity with one another. So carrying on with the, these words, that's how we're to be. So short and sweet, we are to live this way in all respects to any relationship we have. So if there's ever a portion of scripture that aligns with biblical marriage outside of the marriage scriptures that specifically speak to this, to me it's this. This concept of unity and humility and gentleness bearing with one another. If, if the world would just stick to those three verses in regards to marriage and have nothing else, it, it works. It lasts. <laughs> it's, it makes sense according to, in, in God's world. But how do you achieve unity when we're so different? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Is that the other one, right? Mars and Venus. So how do we establish interplanetary unity when we're from different planets, when we're so unique and, and separated from one another? Well, you've got to practice it. It doesn't just happen, does it? And here's how you achieve oneness or unity. You practice what we just read. You practice humility. You practice gentleness. You practice and put those things into, into your life, into patience. How many have prayed for patience? And what happened? What did God give you? A situation to try your patience, right? Because that's the only way you're going to be able to learn, to practice those things. Have these things in your mind. Nobody's perfect Tell me, at all times throughout your entire marriage, have you always had peace and gentleness? You were always able to bear with one another? You never got any arguments or whatever else because you wanted something and it just conflicted with the other person? And I mean, somebody in this room has been in that scenario where that's just never been, it's never been an issue, right? Right. Except for Pastor Ray. <laughs> Vicky would say otherwise. But... Nobody's been there, so we need to practice. Practice makes, well, we'd hope so, but regardless, whether we're perfect or not, practice makes us better to continue to pursue where we need to be. Let's look at another passage of Scripture that typically doesn't really or isn't associated in conversations about marriage and family, but it's one we all know. The characteristics of who we are to be in Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 22 through 26, the fruits of the Spirit. You ever applied those to the marriage conversation? We apply them to our life. It's how we should live. 
But how about within your marriage, within your household, within your family? For the fruit of the Spirit, and kids, you're not out of this conversation either. You're thinking about this too in regards to your relationship to your mom and dad. How you're to respond as a child. And vice versa. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Listen, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, never really associated with marriage and family, but would that not fix the world's problems? If everybody fell in line with the fruit of the Spirit as followers of Jesus, just within the church, if we practice those things, our issues would dissipate, if not altogether go away. We know that's not reality, but don't use that as an, as an excuse. Well, we're sinful, we're going to mess up, so let's just fight with everything that we got. No, we can't have that, ex we can't make excuses to just live our way because now it's all about me. It's about selfishness. It's about pride. It's about what I want in relationship. Tell me that falls within the model of Christ and his life, that it was everything that he did was about him and getting his way. If there's anything he prayed is, Father, let this pass me. I don't want this way. I don't want to sacrifice my life. I don't want to do this. But yet on the cross, bloodied, bruised, on the verge of death, what does he say? He looks at others and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look what, now, think about this in regards to marriage and family, and listen to Jesus' words. Father, forgive them. What they just did to me, what they've been doing to me, forgive them. Can we do that? Can we express that in words when we've been tortured, abused, hurt, made fun of, slapped, ripped apart, to look at other people because you have the agape love of Christ in your heart and look at them and say, I forgive you. It still hurts. I, I, it didn't take away the pain he was feeling in that moment. There was a tremendous amount of pain, more so than any of us will ever feel in our life. But to look at them and go, I forgive you. That takes a lot, doesn't it? But do not write that off as a possibility. Well, that's, he's Jesus. He's God. Of course he can do that. You start to say that in your head, you've lost the battle. Because everything that Christ went through and said, he's given us the power to do so because we've been gifted with the Holy Spirit to do. The same Holy Spirit that was with him on the cross is the same spirit that we have as followers of Jesus. Therefore, the power that we have to look at others and say, I forgive you for the hurt that you've caused me, the things that you've said to me. We need to be able to get to that point or at least continue to practice the things to get to that point. It involves humility. It's the response to one's self-evaluation in light of who God is. We need more humility in our life. When you evaluate yourself and put yourself up against God, is that going to humble you? It should. Immediately if not turn you into a spiritual, emotional pool of nothing because of who he is. We need more humility. In light of who God is, who are we? And then what? Gentleness is humility expressed to the world around us. Gentleness is humility expressed because we look at who God is, what he did for us to humble ourselves. That way I can look at others and be gentle towards other people the expression of who we need to be. We need to evaluate that in the proper order. <laughs> Don't try and be gentle to a hostile world on your own. You will fail. You will fail. So do you want unity? Do you need more unity in your marriage and your family? It starts with you. Individually. What you do, what you practice, what you decide in your mind, how you're going to respond to your family members. Humility, and I, I need to say this. 
I'm going to speak to the guys in the room for a minute. Ladies, I know you deal with this too, but let me just speak to the guys. Gentlemen, humility is not weakness. Humility is not weakness. It doesn't make you a wimp. It doesn't make you a wuss to be laid down and stepped on. Humility is strength. And that's something this world knows nothing about. Humility is strength. When you can deny, oh, let's put it in biblical terms. Can you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus? Yeah, you can. That's humility. Is that weakness? No, it's not. Ladies, I, you deal with pride too. We're not denying that. I just know it's, it's typically in the world, it's a man thing. It's a machismo thing. Pride, arrogance. But women, you've got it too. It's, it's gentle pride. It's glowing pride. But it's there. You can admit that. We all need humility. Patience. Somebody put it this way. How do you define patience? Think about this in light of marriage and family. A spirit that can suffer unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without complaint. Don't look at your, don't, 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 don't elbow, don't touch anybody right now. You can give yourself away. But we all need patience because we will deal with people, especially those within our household. I mean, I'm not, we're not even talking about those outside in the world. But we need a dose of patience, don't we? So don't be afraid to pay, uh, pray for it. Because, yeah, God will give you those opportunities to practice it. But how else are you going to learn? Except going through it. So we are to preserve, make every effort with eagerness to maintain unity. When anything is going to come in the pathway that will divide, that will wedge, that will do anything to start to tear your marriage, your family apart, whatever it might be, you follower of Jesus are to go on the attack and grip that thing and get rid of it. Don't forget, Scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You are the church. Your family is the church. Your marriage is a representation of the church. Therefore, you are on the offensive to take hold of whatever might come in the way and get rid of it. And that is an individual mandate. Husbands, wives, children, whatever your lot. We need to attack the evil that tries to infest our marriage, our family, and get rid of it. But let me make something very clear. Scripture is always very clear. We're jumping ahead, but Ephesians 6 says what? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Amen. You're not out to get rid of people. <laughs> Because you're not battling people. You're battling the evil spirit that is invading the spirit of God. And that's at war in your house. So have that prayer of, God, give me the vision to see the spiritual war that is trying to attack my family, attack my marriage. Because if my marriage is, is to be a representation of Christ's love and his church, won't you be attacked? A hundred percent yes. So it is up to us to go on the offensive in unity to figure out what it is and eliminate that from our household. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Really quick. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one singular focus in our lives as followers of Christ. The triune God we serve. And all three were mentioned right there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One singular focus. But let's look at verse 7. Grace. A lot of times in Scripture, it says, but God. Because God always comes to the rescue. If we learned anything from Joshua but God, right? But here we read, but grace. And I love that phrase. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Why would that phrase right there come right after a beautiful, encouraging word about one God, one baptism, one faith, but then God says, and he looks at us and goes, hmm, but grace. Because we need it. 
You have to have grace in your life and practice grace in order to have a vision of unity for these relationships we're to have. What is grace? You ever have that defined for you? How do I practice grace? You think it's just an inborn quality? No. It is a gift of God, but you can still practice it because you know what it defined, is defined as? Unmerited favor. Something you give to somebody else, especially when they don't deserve it. Doesn't God give us grace? We are saved by grace through faith. Meaning, we didn't deserve salvation. We deserve to go to hell. But God looked at us with so much love, says, no, here, I want you a part of my family. Grace. His grace flows and gives each one a measure of grace according to the gift of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Some have more, some have less. It's not a comparison game. He's giving you individually the amount of grace that you need for who you are. But you know what? Scripture also says his grace never runs out. So there's not any time when you can stop practicing grace. You want to because frustration and anger and hostility and pride and selfishness and all that stuff starts to creep into your heart. Because that's an attack from the enemy. That's when you need to pray, grace, I need more grace. Let grace abound all the more, God, because I need it right now. We need to think about that term grace in our life, especially when we view the other people in our life in an intimate way. So, how many have a difficult time showing grace? I'll wait until every single hand goes up in this room. Participate, church. Do me a favor. I don't want to talk to a brick wall. We all have a hard time experiencing and, and, and practicing grace. We do. Admit it. Because there are just some people. I'm not talking about the people in your house. Don't look at anybody right now because you're going to get in trouble. But we all have a difficult time showing grace to certain people because we look at them and go, you're not worthy of any kindness, gentleness, or grace that I can give you right now. I want you to think about something. Number one, you are called to do it. You are called to show grace. It is not your authority to withhold grace from anybody. So if you have a hard time showing it, first step you need to take is go back to a previous word we just defined. Humble yourself. Have some humility. Because if you say you're not worthy of grace, the simple phrase is that you need to maybe repeat in your mind is put yourself in God's shoes looking at you. If God were to look at you and say, no, I don't think I want to give you any grace right now. If God has given us grace, who are we not to give it to anybody else? Right? So think about this really quick. If you allow selfishness and pride to overwhelm your heart, that you're not willing to show grace to somebody else, you are robbing them of a gift from God. Think about that. You are saying, I'm putting myself in God's shoes. You don't deserve grace because of what you said or did. So you get nothing from me. Who are you? So that's where humility comes in, to say, I need to step back. I need to get on my face before the Lord and say, God, who am I? Put yourself in check before the Lord and say, no, that person needs more grace, not have it with help. Verse 15 in chapter 4. Think about this in regards to our relationship, marriage, and family. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Anybody ever have a conversation with their spouse? Good. So you all talk to one another. Good. Is that done in love? Especially in those moments where you might have to mention something that may not be favorable to the other person. This is where speaking the truth in love comes into play. If we are humble, if we are gentle, if we're patient, and we've examined our heart before the Lord, what can we not say?
to an individual that God has placed in our life in such an intimate way if it's done in love. Look, there's proper communication when it comes to the tough times, but we need to cloak everything in love. Verse 17. He goes on to say, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in futility of their minds. Are you hearing everything he's laying out in regards to relationships and who we're to be in Christ? Now he says, you are to walk no longer in the way that the Gentiles do. And that's, it doesn't, he's not pointing fingers at anybody. It's just for Gentiles, for our understanding, it's just non-believers, unbelievers, the world, people who don't follow Christ. He says, you don't walk like them anymore. You don't act like them anymore. You don't talk like them anymore. The scripture makes it very clear you are not a part of that family anymore. You're a part of God's family and God is nothing but holiness and righteousness and love. And he, I mean, you just the list goes on, doesn't it? We are to walk and live our lives differently. If we're truly born again, we are to approach everything we do in this world from God's perspective. That biblical perspective. And when you don't think you can do that, then keep your mouth closed. Was that gentle? Sorry, I hope it was. Sometimes we just need to not say something. Take a pause. Take a step back. Recuse yourself of the situation and go, I'll come back to this. I think there's a lady in the White House that always says, let me circle back around to that. We need to do that spiritually sometimes rather than just open up our mouth and hope the right thing comes out. No, don't do that. Prepare your response to other people. How you act is different if you are in Christ. What does Scripture say? We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be the same in this world. We're to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. Our mind needs to be renewed. How do we renew our mind? Sergio, how do you renew a vehicle that's worn out and rusted? What do you got to do? Hope for the best? No, you got to get greasy. You got to get dirty. You got to put in the work to renew something, to make it beautiful again. Our minds were messed up. In Christ, it's not automatically transformed, is it? We have to work at it. The more you are in the Word of God, the more your mind will be renewed. It's just, it's the way it works. It's that simple. The more you, whatever you put into your mind, the more of that is going to come out. So if you've got more of the world coming out of your mouth, then you've got a problem. You need to start putting more of the Word of God in so more of the Word of God comes out. Make sense? So what means, methods, or practices are you participating in daily to continue to renew your mind in the things of God? That's a serious question. Everybody needs to ask. What are you doing daily to be in the Word of God, to think on the things of God, to set our minds on the things of God, not on the things here? What do you need to turn off? What do you need to get rid of? Where do you need to be so that you can truly be more transformed? Don't be content with where you're at. There's always room for more. Psalm 4.3 says, God set us apart. Therefore, we are different. He has taken us and plunked us down into his world. He says, you might be in this world, but you are not of this world. 1 John 4, 17 says, we are in this world, but not of it. Ephesians 4, 22, if you just look a few verses down, says what? We are to put off our old self, throw it away. The things you used to do, participate in, speak of in the worldly, secular, sinful sense, gone, done, get rid of it. All that was nailed to the cross. We are to walk in holiness. Again, two things I always throw out. Maybe someday you'll memorize them too. I'm not saying they have to be your favorite verse, but it's mine. 1 John 2, 6. For those who say they abide in him, walk in him, live with him, follow him, ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And what do we learn from Mark? It's also in Matthew chapter 20. How did Jesus live his life? He came not to be served, but to serve. And... Give his life as a ransom for many. Love, service, and sacrifice are the characteristics that should define how we view our marriage, our family, our children, and our relationships. 
Jump down to verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 4. Another aspect, be angry and do not sin. (laughs) Sorry, that one always makes me laugh because how in the world is that possible? Be angry and do not sin. What does that say? It says you can be angry and not sin. Anger is an emotion you can exhibit, and it's okay. It's okay to feel anger. It is a human emotion. However, the moment that anger causes you to sin, remember, because everything starts here in our mind. And if we allow it to come down to our heart, it's from our heart that breeds action. So if you allow whatever anger is going on here to get to here, and you've let it fester long enough and sit long enough that then you just spout that anger in a sinful manner, then the anger is a sin in itself. Have you ever been angry towards the sin of the world? That's okay anger. That's righteous anger. That's the anger Christ exemplified when he went into the temple and flipped tables, drove people out because they were using his house, his father's house, as a den for thievery and and taking advantage of people in God's house. And he had anger towards that. So anger is okay. But you're not allowed to live in your anger. Oh, Pastor Cam said anger's fine. I can just be angry. No. Because you're human. (laughs) If we can exhibit our anger in a proper way because there's sin in the camp, Remember Achan's story from not too long ago? You think Joshua had a little bit of anger at the sin of Achan? Yeah, but it was dealt with, wasn't it? They didn't just live in the anger. What does the rest of those verses say? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? There is a certain amount of time, not literally the sun setting, but a certain amount of time you determine between you and the Lord to deal with the anger that you're feeling whatever it might be, and deal with it. Give it to the Lord in a proper way. It says, give no opportunity for the devil. So that time frame, you might say, good, I can live in my anger for four weeks. That's reasonable in my, my time. No, because will the devil work his way in to turn that anger into a sinful outburst towards somebody else? Absolutely he will. So the moment you give the devil an opportunity, he'll take advantage of you. If you're Mind is not on the things of God. This brings up the idea of self-control, doesn't it? Again, it's okay to feel anger. We've all felt it. It's not okay to act on it when it leads to the harm and hurt of somebody else. Self-control is vital. Look at verse 29. goes along with this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You heard those fancy church words called edification? Building up of other people? Can you do that when corrupting, evil, sinful, worldly talk is coming out of your mouth? I'm not just talking about expletive language or bad language. I'm talking about anything that might tear somebody down. And when you live in an intimate relationship with another individual, you and only you and they about you know how to push each other's buttons. You know what words you can say to set somebody off, don't you? It's almost like a gun in a holster. And you're ready to crank that thing at any moment because you know what you can say that can just tear somebody apart. So it's important that we practice, practice, practice self-control. Think about the words that we say. I mentioned this, and I'm not putting them on the spot, but I say it to my kids all the time. What my dad used to say to me, do you think before you speak? Was that necessary to say? But then we typically, even as adults, we kind of qualify the things that we say with what? Well, I was only joking. I was only messing around. And we'll come back around to that at some point, but that's actually in the Bible. Did you know that? When you fly the flaming arrows and darts at somebody with corrupting talk and things that are going to tear somebody down and they pass it off as, well, I was only joking. It's actually in Proverbs 26 or 27. It's interesting. I brought that up to some middle schoolers one time when they had to come into my office when I was a principal. 
I said, do you know what? I said, why did you say that? Why? This girl is crying, bent over in half because she's in tears because of what you said to her. And their response was, well, we're only joking. Well, yeah, because you got caught. The darts already hit. They already did their damage. By you saying you were only joking doesn't remove that and heal the wound. What's done is done. That's why self-control is so, so important. We need to encourage other people, edify, build them up. James chapter 3, verses 6 and 10 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Well, praise God, we have a tongue, huh? Jeez. When you can set, on, set the world on fire from hell because of the things that you say, we need to be careful. In verse 10, it says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. That's called hypocrisy. You speak kind things in one respect and then turn right around and behind their back say something else, contrary. Got to be careful. Really quick, to finish out chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 4. Again, more terminology to consider. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's the words. If he did it for you, you can do it for others. But think about those words. They were defined this way. Wrath or bitterness or rage flows from bitterness and refers to outbursts of uncontrolled, passionate frustration. Anger is inappropriate noise, noisy assertiveness and abuse. Clamor describes shouting. Slander refers to words that hurt another person. Malice is bad feelings towards another person or people. And it's the source of all the others. So think about what's in your heart, how you view other people, or even in the immediate, what somebody may have said or done and how you immediately feel towards them. Those are the moments of pause before you just react like we're so good at doing. Pause. Think about these words. They need to be removed. That's what God is saying. Let it be removed from you, put away from you. Oh, that God would cause us to forget. Wouldn't that be a blessing? If you could just pray to God to forget that situation, to forget those words. Doesn't allow us to do that, does he? Unless he blesses us with Alzheimer's someday in our life. But in the immediate, we don't get to forget. I tell you what, right now, heart on the table, there are words that my dad spoke to me when I was a young kid that I still carry with me today. Because of the things that he said, it hurt. Now, we've dealt with it. I understand. I'm not just, I'm not vomiting, you know, past issues. My dad understands this if he's watching. I love you. But, yeah, there were things that he said. And you know what? I'm not pointing the finger at him because I was a punk kid who was disobedient and didn't do what he was told to do. Had I honored my father in that moment, those things wouldn't have been said. Does he have responsibility for the things that he said? Absolutely. But it's interesting that I remember what I said and did. He remembers what he said and did. And we carry that to this day. We won't forget those issues. But I tell you what, to this day, I hold nothing against my dad for that. Amen. He's my hero. He's my mentor. He's my coach, my pastor, my father. He's everything to me. I don't hold that against him. How wrong would that be on my part? 30 plus years later to go, hey, dad, remember when you said this to me? That hurts still. What is that going to do except cause that division? Kind of like I do with my mom. I have a scar on my thumb. Every once in a while, I still see it when I was like five years old because she ripped the scissors out of my hand without telling me first. Jeez, mom. Why? Because I was a stupid little kid that was running through the house with scissors. She said, no, slice my fingers. Every once in a while, I go, mom, remember this? so horrible short of slapping me and she has every right to it's it's a joke nowadays but anyways we can't hold things against people can we 
Forgiveness is release. Forgiveness is going to do more for you as you move forward than it is waiting for the other person to respond to that forgiveness. Did you hear that? Forgiveness is releasing you of carrying that burden, carrying that weight, regardless of how they respond to that. When you can look at an individual and say, I forgive you because God's forgiven me of everything that I've done, yeah, I can show you forgiveness and then move forward. Doesn't mean you won't remember the occurrence, but you know how to handle it. Let's jump into chapter five. Verses one and two. First, sorry, we talked about walking in unity. Tons of terminology. Now, chapter five, we talk about walking in love. We walk in love. Verses one and two says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Parents, think about this as role models for your children. We should take to heart what Paul says to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. How's that for some responsibility on your shoulders? You, mom and dad, are to imitate Christ. So your children who are watching you would, Lord willing, do the same. But you imitate Christ and let Christ handle the rest. That's a daily challenge for us, isn't it? Whether you know it or not, your children are paying attention. And I'm not just talking about the school-aged young ones in the room. If you have older children, gone, out of the house, living their life, doing their thing, I'm just going to roll the dice and throw this out there as a percentage. That they are still watching you 100% of the time. They still see what mom and dad are doing. How mom and dad are living their life. So just because they're done and gone, your responsibility doesn't end as you continue to imitate the things of Christ well into your life. Because you don't know. If you have a child that may not be walking with the Lord, guess what your actions might do for that child to come to know the Lord because they watch mom and dad remain faithful long after they left the house. It's a big responsibility, but one we need to take on. So we could say confidently, just like John does, in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. What a beautiful statement we could make. And there's still hope to make that statement. But that has to come with not just you saying, I hope they find Jesus sometime. No, it's going to come back to you that you are still modeling that well into your later days. So walk in love with Jesus as our example. He loved us to the point of death. We talked about it. Service and sacrifice. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice. That's Romans 12.1. But what does it say in 1 John 3, 16? By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And may I add, our husbands, our wives, our children, our friends, our family, our neighbors. And it goes on and on. Brothers and sisters just puts everybody in that same pot. But it's what we need to do. Love is sacrificial. Love is showing them grace when they don't deserve it. Love is forgiving them when they may never respond to that. That's what love is. Love looks beyond the outer layer. It's that agape, God-centered, God-empowering love that no matter who the individual is, what they've done, what they've said, you can still look at them with the love of Christ and say, I forgive you and I love you. And maybe one day we can have a relationship again, whatever the situation might be. But that's where it needs to fall. Love. It's a kind of life that's pleasing to the Lord. Verses 3 and 4, we're going to touch on because there's terminology we need to understand, but we can address these in more detail later because of certain issues that come up with this. But verses 3 and 4 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So I'm just going to put it this way. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. What's the opposite of love? Some say hate, which is okay to say. You know, I heard one person say it this way, though. Think about this. This might change your mind a little bit. The opposite of love is not hate. Because hate is still an emotion that is being geared towards you. Such as love. Some say the opposite of love is indifference. When they just completely ignore. Don't respond. Whatever it might be. Just one way to look at it. But hate is still okay. What's the opposite of self-sacrifice and self-control? Self-indulgence. When you do anything you can to take care of yourself, please yourself. It's things we need to consider. Everything about these terms, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, can damage and destroy any semblance of unity within a marriage. Any semblance of love can be torn down in a heartbeat. And those kind of things enter the picture. The intimate relationship between a husband and a wife or parents to children should be one of thankful praise. Thankful praise for who God has placed in your life. Nothing should be allowed in or discussed not disgusting, but talked about, disgust, that would bring sin, guilt, or shame into a marriage or family. However, if conversation needs to be had about any of those issues, terminology, then, then do it for the sake of strangling those issues and getting them out of your relationship, out of your house. But in regards to open acceptance and practice, absolutely not. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It says, walk as children of light. So we've already talked about we need to walk in humility. We need to walk in love. And now it's telling us we need to walk as children of light. What does that mean? Well, who is Christ? The light of the world. He tells us that in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And then what does he tell us? What does Jesus say to us in Matthew 5? We are the light of the world. And we're only the light of the world because we allow his light to completely envelop us so that whether we open our eyes or open our mouth, what comes out? His light. His shine. His glory. Because remember we talked about that clingy dependence on him when goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life because we're living in the wake of who Christ is, His light, His mercy, His goodness. And it just envelops us that when we walk anywhere, the stink of goodness and mercy and love and God's light is just going to infect other people. It's what we have to do. We have to strive for. We also have to practice regularly. So therefore, consider it a command. You're the light of the world. So be Motel 6. Leave the light on. Never mind. Sometimes they just crash and burn, don't they? Maybe it's good here. Never mind. Huh? Let's move on. Let's bring this to a close. Verses 15 through 20 of chapter 5. Verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk. There's that word again. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last big term we need to grab onto. It's one we as a church stand on. Over here. Wisdom. Interesting that humility is there too and also love. Hmm. 
wanted to point that out. This church stands on the Word of God. But wisdom, we need wisdom. A much-needed character trait to walk in this world. It's very clear when you just look at the news or social media or whatever else, this world is full of evil. How do we as followers of Christ navigate this world? We need wisdom. And God tells us, he gives us his wisdom as much as he gives us his grace. Which means what? It's unending. It's always. How do we protect our heart and mind against the very things the enemy throws at us? Wisdom. So constantly seek to fill yourself more and more with the Holy Spirit. Now, he talks about getting drunk with wine. Kind of a weird addition to this talk on wisdom. However, think about it this way. It's, a st it's still a good thing to consider. Please, it's not beneficial to constantly be drunk. Okay, we'll move on. But he says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've ever lived that world of drinking, can you get drunk with one sip a day? No, you cannot. There's purpose in getting drunk. In a single setting, at one time, to fill yourself with a certain liquid that destroys your mind, destroys your thinking, makes you vulnerable to attack from both physical and spiritual so that the people or whatever else can easily take advantage of you. And if you've lived the drunk life before, and the reason I can say this is because I have, it's a dangerous place to be in. But I said in my mind at certain times, there was purpose in what I was going to do. I didn't walk to 7-Eleven to just go take a sip. No, I came back with a truckload because I had purpose. So think about that in regards to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit when you just take a little sip every day now and then? No, you cannot. There needs to be purpose to constantly and consistently fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. You constantly pour that in for a reason. As some people will constantly pour in for a reason because they just want to get rid of the issues of the moment, drown their sorrows or whatever the term might be. So with being filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to drink Him in constantly with purpose because we know the result. If we know the result of getting drunk, we know the result of living in step with the Holy Spirit. You take it in purposefully because the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and every other good word we've used this morning. If you want those things and practice those things, then fill yourself with purpose with the things of God. It's a, it's a good thing to think about. So, you see, uh, if you have your note pages before you, you see all the words I want you to evaluate personally. We talked about unity, humility, gentleness, patience, grace, holiness, self-control, love, thankfulness, wisdom, joy. Now, make this a little test for yourself. On a scale of 1 to 10, how are you doing in all of those things in regards to your relationships with your parents? your relationships with your children, your relationships with your spouse. Grade yourself. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, be your own worst critic. That's okay. But then, what's the point of taking tests? So you know where you stand and what you need to work on. Now, don't give yourself a grade of five and go, okay, I'm good there. Five's good. I'll take that. Or I'll take a three. No, don't do that. We're striving for the best, right? Straight A's. But you have to take that test and evaluate yourself, your heart in those areas and give them to the Lord. And then fill yourself up with the right answers. <laughs> He's given you the answers. It's a cheat code. It's right here. Use it. It's like my students used to do when I was a teacher. To define all the terms, they just flip to the back of the book and find the answers, right? He's giving you the answers. It's okay. 
But we need to take that test. What are we to fight against? What words did we use today? We actively, spiritually fight against division, pride, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, impurity, hatred, indifference, self-indulgence. You may not want to, but go ahead and grade yourselves on those too. It's not a pleasant test, but you may need to do it to see where you stand. So, next week, we're going to continue on. And I hope what you've heard today is in light of who we are in Christ. That is going to filter over into any relationship we have. So when we talk now specifics on our roles and expectations and communication and everything else in regards to marriage and family, all this terminology comes into play. This isn't just a standalone that you can just toss aside and then come next week and go, okay, now we're really going to get into marriage. No, we just did. You have to set your mind and say these things apply more to marriage than any scripture that talks specifically about marriage. You, you can't separate them. Or your family, your children, whatever it might be. So take all this, bring it right back next week. And we're going to divide this up in a way and get into the rest of Ephesians 5 when it talks about husbands and wives and Ephesians 6 that talks about children. And interesting, contextually enough, you know what the rest of Ephesians 6 talks about? Spiritual warfare. So when we take a look at the book of walking in unity, walking in love, then he talks about marriage, then he talks about children, then he talks about spiritual warfare. I wonder what's going to come when you set your mind on the things of God in regards to your marriage and your family. So Paul says, then you better armor up because the attacks are going to come. But we've got all the defense in the world, don't we? We'll talk about that in time.